Rob. Hey, buddy. Good to see you, man. And hello, everybody who is out there joining us. So we actually have a pretty full room right now. We have uh, almost 70 people in Zoom with us. Who knows how many people are watching on YouTube and on Integral Live right now. Uh, this is great. Um, welcome, everyone. And welcome to, this is actually episode two of a new series um, that Rob and myself are doing together called The Transformation Age, um, in addition to a bunch of other resources and articles that Rob has been contributing to Integral Life in recent weeks. And um, yeah, today we're going to be talking about, Rob, something, um, you know, sort of extraordinary that we sent out yesterday, uh, which was called Deeper into the Great Release. It was a really, really wonderful um, essay, sort of giving us a, a, you know, bird's eye view, the view from 50,000 feet of just what this all is that we're heading towards right now, this massive transition or uh, social inflection point. Um, and it was, it was a really, really wonderful article. And, you know, I figured just to sort of um, get us started, I was kind of thinking maybe what we should do is skip to the end of the story yeah. and start really with the good news. Um, because there's, there's a piece you have right at the end of that. And um, I was thinking what we would do to start is I'm going to kind of pull a Ken Wilber here and I'm just yeah. going to read your own words back to you and then you can respond. <laughs> Um, so in your piece, you say, the good news is, in some respects, we know what a release does. It shatters connections and frees up innovation. We know how it operates. It destabilizes existing power structures. We know what it seeks to return to higher resilience and better functioning hierarchies. And we know some version of what comes next, chaos, innovation, experimentation, and reorganization to an emergent higher form of better adapted organization assuming there's not an intermediate breakdown to a regress regressive lower form of organization. We may not know the exact form or details these things will take as it proceeds, but we do know the underlying mechanics that are at work. Break up control of resources, increase freedom and experimentation, and increase system agility. We're going to do everything we can to help you navigate this period so you don't just survive it, but you can actually thrive. You become anti-fragile in the face of breakdown. Because if any of what I wrote above is true, the reorganization is going to rely on you to make it happen. You are simply that important. And it's my job and my team's job to make sure you have every resource we can give you to help you do so. So... You can see why I wanted to start here, um, because th this is the whole impetus, again, for us doing this show. Um, we want to make ourselves as available to our members and to the larger integral audience um, as possible. And, you know, totally echo something I was saying in my conversation with Diane and Gail and Rob and Cindy Lou a couple days ago when I said, look, you know, we want to hear from you. Um, so if you have any strong ideas about what kind of content you want to see coming through Integral Life, what kind of practices you think would be helpful, whatever you think would be um, a good way for Integral Life to support you, get in touch with us. You can send us personal emails. You can write in the comments right below. You can go to our community. There's any number of ways uh, that you can engage with us. And more than anything, we want to let you know um, that we're here for you. Yeah, I want to first thank everybody for, for joining us. Uh, and I guess the way I would start off our conversation today uh, is to just say that, like, I'm really aware that this is a big topic. I, like, I'm painfully aware of this is a big topic. Like, like in one sense, we could go back and look at this as an 800-year story. I mean, of course, like anything in Ergo, we go back thousands of years. We wanted to, but 
But we could really, as I did in, in my essay, The Great Release, you could look at it as an 800-year story talking about some of what power does, at least in kind of the quasi sort of roughly modern era, right? The more contemporary era of the last thousand years. You can then zoom in on a 100-year cycle or you could zoom in on like 20-year macro cycles or the one neck, you know, the one year cycle we have in front of a day the new thing we're going through, the new life condition. So I just want to acknowledge up front that I'm aware that it, there's a lot there. We can look at it from a lot of different angles. Um, there's a lot of moving pieces to it. And depending on whether we want to look backwards, like over the last 80 years and tell that story, kind of why are we here? Talk about the next 12 months, like what's this inflection point going to look like? What, what are some of the near-term implications? What's this next 10 years look like? Which I really think is the transitional moment in the information age and the transformation of this next 10 years. And then what, what does it look like on the other side of that to whatever degree we, we can't know, but we can certainly outline some guesses at what the life conditions are because we know enough about development, we know enough about cosmic evolution to know, as you said, Corey, in the opening quote, like we know some of what it's up to, we know it has to resolve contradiction. We know it has to satisfy the limitation of whatever under complexity is going on in the system that's forcing it to break to with. And so we can say, well, what what are some of the broad architectural elements of what that could look like, let's say 20 years from now. And that, that's where the story gets also quite hopeful. And so depending on where you want to look and you know, you go from being an optimist to a pessimist in the same sentence, depending on kind of what frame of view we're, we're taking on. And so ultimately I hope that everything I talk ultimately an optimistic story, but clearly We'd be lying if we said these periods of transition aren't also very pessimistic just because as we know in all growth, all growth requires pain, all growth requires suffering, it requires adjustment. And there's definitely going to be that part of it too as we go through this. So I just want to put that out there. The other thing I want to say uh, just to start is I really want us um, really want to take a moment to acknowledge the first responders and the people who are on the front line right now of this pandemic. Amen. People who are serving uh, our brothers and sisters all around the world to keep them alive, to help them go through this hellish uh, pandemic and exposing themselves to the risk. And so I want to thank them publicly. I want to acknowledge them. I want to uh, say that if they weren't doing what they're doing, we, we certainly couldn't be doing what we're doing. And um, I hope we can all uh, give them whatever support, continue to give them whatever support that we can in whatever way we can. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely echo that. It's actually kind of funny, Rob, um, you know, there's these videos that are going around right now of, um, you know, coming out of New York and out of Spain and out of Italy of people just celebrating um, yeah. those first responders. And uh, yesterday I watched this video that's kind of, um, you know, making, I don't want to say it's gone viral because that doesn't seem like it's the most uh, <laughs> appropriate analogy anymore. But um, th there's a video going around by uh, John Krasinski, who was, uh, 
who is in the office and yeah, he's yeah. doing it's basically a compilation of like good news stories and i watch it it's about 16 minutes long and what was really interesting was my response to it um because for whatever reason just by seeing just by having some contrast with all of this sort of anxiety and fear and uncertainty that, that we've all been so immersed in in recent weeks, just having a little bit of contrast with these positive stories, right? Yeah. It, it was the first time during, you know, since this crisis began that I've been able to cry about it, that I was actually able to like move some emotion. It's like, you know, and this is, this is something we talk about often with anti-fragility, like uh, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. As long as you have a break, right? As long as you have an opportunity to recover and to gain more strength, it's when this keeps on pressing down when the stresses, um, you know, don't let up at all, that it becomes exhausted and that we can kind of get dragged down. So I would encourage people watch these videos, you know, seek out good news where you can find it and allow that to sort of create just a little bit more contrast uh, in your heart. Because for me, I mean, talk about a great release that that's exactly yeah. what it felt like for me. Yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, and speaking of that, just the nomenclature, I just want to, you know, say something to appreciate um, how you write about this, because as you're writing about this, you're not calling this the great breakdown or the great collapse, right? You're calling this the great release, which has, you know, I mean, obviously there's some pain involved in that, but it, it, it is from a macro point of view, a tremendously hopeful and optimistic, I think, reading. And that is, you know, you and I were talking last week, um, this is sort of our jobs right now is to yeah. simultaneously confront reality and to generate hope while doing so. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, just, just some appreciation for how you were able to fold that into this piece. Well, thank you. Um, and, uh, I have to say that some of the nomenclature of course comes out of the complexity sciences where they're taking a neutral view of just what complexity does. It just, you know, it, it builds up these tensions and then it releases them and what have you. So, um, you know, I think that, I think that that is a, what I like about the integral community is it can, it can talk about hard topics and understand them in a way where the deep structure almost becomes in a way kind of neutral. Like, and, and yes, the surfaces kind of suck and there's stuff we're going through where, where there are real life conditions and those kind of suck. Uh, but from a structural point of view, once we understand it at that deeper level, we can actually take heart in what we see as the evolutionary process unfolding. And that's, I think that if I want to spend, you know, what, what I'd like to do today is really spend some more time going through that and talk about what actually is happening, we think, at the deeper level structurally. I think in future episodes or future, uh, future parts of the series, we get into, we could get more deeper into like, what does the transformation age actually maybe hold, right, in terms of some of the context? And what is... What are some of the technologies that are being enabled and what are some of the processes we go through? Like there's a, there's a whole, as I said in the beginning, there's kind of a whole bunch of stuff to unpack as we go through. But one thing I think that is important given this is really only the second time we've done this and, and really the first time I've come really in a way kind of somewhat prepared to say, here's, a, here's the story. I've brought a couple of visuals to help you try to you know, get your head around it. Uh, is to, to kind of reset the table and say, let's assume no one knows what we're talking about and, and go back and double click on all of that. We don't have to take a lot of time to do it. We could do it probably in a half hour. Cool. Um, 
and then and then just jump right into q and a and see what's on on people's minds but i think that's an important thing to to first do to set the table so that we kind of understand where we are hey i'm just happy one of us is prepared today <laughs> yeah well it's a tag team effort <laughs> So uh, if you want to do that, Corey, why don't, um, why don't I share my screen and, yeah. uh, and I'll, I'll show some slides. Yep. Beautiful. Start. Let me know if you can all see this. Yep. I see it. Okay. So I'm going to start with a quote out of The Great Release um, that I think is important to kind of what, where I want to start with this. And again, keep in mind, I'm coming deep from inside the lower right quadrant. And I, I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm aware that it can get a little geeky, may even get a little boring in a way. But, but in a way, what we're talking about is a, a system that's breaking down. And it's these, this long view of history and where the United States as this big, powerful hegemonic entity fits within that, what it's up to. So we're dealing with this system. And so it is a little bit of a lower right view. And then that infuses the other quadrants as, as we'll certainly get into. But I wanna start with this quote, uh, which you can all read, but I'll just quickly skim it uh, to point out some things. Cause it's really what we're talking about here is about a hierarchy. We're talking about the hierarchy um, between are you, are you good, Corey? Yeah, okay. What we're talking about is a hierarchy in the world system. Now, when we talk about the world system, we're talking about the, not just the planet, not just the environment, the ecology, that kind of thing. We're talking about the geopolitical system. We're talking about the, uh, the community of nation states. And after World War II, of course, there was a new hierarchy put in place to govern that set of nation states in the United Nations and all the accompanying uh, agreements that were formed economically uh, in terms of the rules, in terms of the, in terms of commerce, in terms of, you know, the military alignments and all of that. Right. Um, and one of the things that we point out in when a system gets to the point where it's no longer capable of adapting is that there's something going wrong in the hierarchy. Now, the reason why I think this is such an interesting topic for integralists is what we're talking about here is holons. We're talking about holons within holons, talking about holes and parts, as you'll see in a slide I'll show you in just a moment. So healthy functioning hierarchies, absolutely critical to well-functioning lives, societies, and governments. It's an immutable law of the universe that higher order systems need to be able to organize and regulate lower order systems. They exist to optimize information and provide a global context and a broader purpose for the lower order system to serve. This is important, provide a context, provide a global backdrop that everybody can buy into. To do this properly, they have to take care not to over-regulate or over-optimize to the point of killing resilience, creation, or freedom in the level system. The whole can't allow itself to destroy the part's own individual purpose. Likewise, a lower order system's purpose and power can't be allowed to dominate a higher order system without the higher order system becoming oppressive to every other subsystem contained within it. What we're talking about here is a, 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 a tension and an instability and a disequilibrium and ultimately a kind of a form of cancer that builds up within hierarchies. We see it in organizations, we see it in teams, we see it in marriages, we see it 
social holons, right? So this is not new territories, but it's a big deal when it is occurring between the set of nations around the world as a global holon and the prevailing hegemon of the day, which is the United States. And that's what's going on here. And it's a big deal because of this. Well, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons, but this is one of them. The meta crisis. Meta crisis is global. You can't solve it as an individual nation state. At Enter to Life, we've addressed this many, many times. We've actually been addressing it for years, but it's becoming more obvious, I think, to your, your sort of everyday person who's, who's thinking about these kinds of things that, ah, you know, these kinds of problems don't care about, don't care about borders. The meta crisis describes an interoperating, multifaceted, complex set of problems that are all emerging, all interrelating to, to each other, all fundamentally not occurring at the level of the national holon. They're occurring mm -hmm. at the level of the global holon. And yes, we've had versions of each of these to some degree in the past, uh, you know, annihilation. We had a Cold War with nuclear, you know, a, a nuclear standoff in, in the early 60s. I mean, yes, that was very serious. And that was a early hint at the coming meta crisis. But guess what? Now we've got it in a lot of ways, right? Now we have it with cascading economic depressions every 10 years, because we're about to go through one, one again, right? We have new kinds of biological threats. With CRISPR, we can now, we can now, uh, tweak DNA and tweak, literally create new kinds of organisms uh, in our garage. We've decentralized the ability to do that, uh, which puts bioterror on, on, on the global landscape as a problem. Terrorism itself, how is modernity accommodating these, uh, these dispossessed traditional views that take up violence uh, because of failed governance? environmental destruction, we know about ocean acidification and that kind of thing. And then the big one sitting at the middle of all of this, the, the really big one, global warming, because it's not just a problem in itself. It's not just this kind of pins the meta crisis itself. It also affects every single one of these other ones. It cascades through the rest of these. Um, so when we talk about a problem of this magnitude, when we talk about the world system becoming a hierarchy not working very well, uh, we're, we're, we're presented with this, this alarming immediacy to the problem because of the meta-crisis. Like, it's not just a luxury problem anymore. This is a problem that's quite serious. Now, when we look at and Corey, I don't know. Can it, can everybody see me too, Corey? Or is this? Yeah, no. Just, uh, yeah, we can. We can see you uh, and and the graphics. Okay, just I was just wondering because I'm sitting here gesticulating, and so <laughs> so what I tried to show with this graphic is this sense that there's this global hole on kind of atop the Earth, right? And then there's a national hole on below it, kind of subservient to it. And this is what the hierarchy looks like. This is what the holarchy looks like the social hierarchy. And remember when we talk about a complex system, we were always talking about its purpose. So you could say, well, okay, if we looked at the complex system, quote unquote, of your marriage, 
what's its purpose? Well, its purpose is to love each other, have intimacy, have, have a best friend and, and maybe to raise a family and to have a partner for my whole life. Like that's a definable, I mean, you can put it in prettier language, but that's a definable kind of purpose. So anytime we look at a social hold on or we look at a complex system, we can just in abstract terms say, well, what's kind of, what's the purpose of that thing? And the system always wants to serve its purpose. Like that's the whole basis upon which the system self-regenerates, right? Whatever the system is, whether it be everything from a virus to, you know, like I said, a marriage or, or, or the glo kind of the global order. So when it comes to the global whole on, the global social whole on, the purpose is to enable nations to thrive, to ensure national autonomy, to provide a stable global context. You know, we can't have five different global contexts, otherwise you end up with a real problem in terms of meaning and whatever. And by the way, just to double click on this a little bit, this is the problem we have in the US, not at the global level, but inside the US we have mm -hmm. trouble because we no longer have a national context. We don't have a stable national context, right? So we'll get into what that means in a second as it gets exported up. But, but that's one of the things the, the, the sort of the global whole on wants to do. It wants to provide a global context of meaning. Uh, it wants to be able to coordinate global ideology and behavior. Like again, if you don't have the same context, you got five different or 10 different ideologies, well, all of a sudden you've got a real fragmentation and you tend to see that right on the verge of war. And the global whole on also wants to enforce national responsibility because it's not just enough to extend rights and freedom and autonomy. You also have to enforce responsibility on behalf of the sub whole ons, the nations to be in service to that. And there's a give and take here where what the global whole on is doing, it has central coordination, control, and context so the nations can thrive. And then what the sub whole on is doing is it's helping the higher level whole on fulfill its purpose, the welfare, the freedom and responsibility of nations. Now let's look at nation. What is the national whole on purpose? At least as it relates to this relationship, its purpose is to enable the world to thrive, help the higher level whole on enable the world to thrive, not abuse its autonomy to provide a stable uh, global context to help the, the global whole on provide a stable global context, to fulfill responsibility, to coordinate, serve, and cooperate, and to enable internal functioning and flourishing, right? And, and if we, and by the way, so that what we're doing is we're looking at the nation looking up. If we were to look at the nation looking down, so now it's the, it's the top layer of the hierarchy, you would see a lot of the same thing, right? It has to have a national context. It has to ensure stability. It has to try to um, try to have kind of a coherent meaning structure. It should, it should ensure autonomy and rights and responsibility in a balanced way. Like, it, you know, wherever you look, the, the, the abstract principles tend to be largely the same. Arrows and well, the Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Excuse me. Here's the problem. Problem is, we have the United States having flipped that and done a move that's called suboptimization, which is when a lower level hold on hijacks 
the next layer up using whatever power it has, then take over that power center and it hijacks the purpose, the functioning and the organization and all kinds of really, really bad outcomes then begin to ensue. And what has happened, one way to, one way to understand what has happened in the United States is that the money system over the last 50 some odd years, well, really 40, going back to the late 60s, late 60s and early 70s, when the money powers within the US decided that they really wanted to try to put a full on assault into capture of the government because they were scared by both the uh, social progressivism of the 1968 protest movements, the economic, uh, the slowdown of the economic progress in the 60s. And uh, then, of course, what, what happened in 1971, which was the, the signal crisis of the United States in its hegemonic growth curve, which you'll see in a second, the signal crisis was um, basically the world was running out of dollars. We were attached to the gold standard. And what Nixon did is took us off the gold standard. 1971 was the defining event in some ways of, of many of our lives in a way that most people probably wouldn't appreciate. And the reason why it was such a, an important move is it allowed the United States then to become the world's reserve currency, but with nothing backing it, which means mm -hmm. it could print whatever it wanted. It could print whatever it needed to provide the world's entire economic system. Remember how I described the economics, right? It's the world's, it's the human energy system. It's our stored human energy system. And the United States basically said, by taking us off the gold standard in 71, we now can control the world's energy system, the world's human energy system with our printing press. And because of that, over the then coming 50 years, we became the world's largest debtor nation. China's pretty close, it's, you know, but you know, it's a, it's a matchup between the two. World's largest debtor nation, it hollowed out our middle class, it destroyed our manufacturing base. I mean, it had all of, it created wealth inequality. Like there's all kinds of then follow on problems that occurred that destroyed the United States from within. Mm. The other thing it did is it allowed, it continued to allow the United States to exercise its hegemony on the world stage, but at very, very high cost. As I said, very high cost internally to its overall uh, form and, and structure and what have you. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Real, real briefly, Rob, uh, in terms of yeah. sub-optimization, would that include things like, um, first thing that came to my mind was like regulatory capture? Yes, you know, when, that's precisely when... an example. Okay. Yeah, precisely an example of, of sub-optimization is regulatory capture. And, and actually the point I was going to make, so thank you for reminding me of it, <clears throat> is we're not, we didn't just see the United States go up and sort of capture the world system. I mean, it had captured it after World War II anyway. I mean, we, we, we defined the world order after World War II. We, we did the organization the last time this happened. Um, but what really changed is as we went through our own crisis, and you can see it right here, this inflection point after 1971, after we went through our own crisis, our own signal crisis, uh, 
what it allowed us to do. Sorry, I just totally lost my train of thought because I looked, I looked at my, I looked at my, my, my graphic. Uh, <laughs> we were captured from within by the money forces in the U.S. So what what happened is increasingly the political money nexus within the U.S., which remember is a sub on of the national holon. So to track this is interesting. So if you created a holarchical map, you would see the, the sort of contagion or the virus, to use that kind of term of art, you would see it and you'd be able to track it up the holarchical chain as the forces from within the U.S., these sub-holons, the, the business community, the corporate community, the lobbying community, the, the campaign finance community, like all of these interacting dynamics of this nexus between let's call it Washington DC and Wall Street, as the 70s come to a close, as Reagan is brought into power, as neoliberalism becomes the philosophy to replace the Keynesianism of the day, what happens is all of that bubbles up into a true ideological uh, paradigm shift that affects all four quadrants for 40 years, the nation over. And what happens is increasingly that set of subholons actually then capture the national holon. Mm. They capture the national holon. And 2008 was, the, was a dramatic sort of wake up call that that had happened and that these guys don't know what they're doing. So what 2008 represented is we don't, they, they, we, they really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Trump is elected for much the same reasons. The populism that grows out of this period is a direct result of not just 2008 failing, but the, the sub-optimization or the hijacking of the national hole-on for the last 40 years by this capital political nexus that had this certain ideology. And of course, Increasingly now, it's, it's being pushed right up into the global hull on, right? So what, what, what Trump has been doing, if you look at what he's actually saying, um, he's not, he, does, he specifically rejects the idea of a global context. Mm. He says it's every, every man for themselves. He specifically does not want to enforce national responsibility. He says, let everybody tend their own garden. There is no moral order that should dictate the kind of global landscape. Uh, there should really be no coordination of behavior. Let us compete. Mm. And not only let us compete, whatever you want, I'm for sale. You want our military? Fine, you pay us for it. You want, uh, you want technology? Pay us for it. Like everything has been actually sort of re- uh, reconfigured or, 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 or extruded back through this lens that kind of marries this Hobbesian view of every person for themselves in this dog-eat-dog, brutal natural world on the one hand, and this kind of very uh, uh, neoliberal free market and pathologically so sense that everything's for sale. Mm. Like You just have to pay us. So the whole global hull on has been absolutely not only devastated by virtue of the fact the U.S. has done such a shitty job for several decades in doing its job here, but also then Trump comes along and in a lot of ways is just finishing the job. Mm. So this is a backdrop to the cycles within cycles within cycles 
that we're talking about when we look at the great release of the last 80 years or, or, or that story of 80 years now culminating in, in the great release with the transformation age meeting us from the future and this moment of transition between the two. And so I want to just give you a flavor of the cycles within cycles, within holons, within context, right? That, that we're thinking about as we look at this situation, both looking back, looking forward. And this was something that I created. And Corey, I, I can stop and, and we can chat about this before I, I, I dive into this piece. This, but is, something this, I is a, this is a sexy graphic right here. Yeah. Um, so, well, okay, maybe I'll just uh, touch on it. Then we, we, then we can, we can chat about, you know, everything I've just said. So when we think this way, when we think integrally, when we think holonically, remember again, we're thinking of like right here, you know, you've probably all seen this adaptive cycle picture that I've used in the various pieces that I've done. Let, let me take, I'll, I'll take a moment to just double on this because actually I, had, I, had, I was kind of pointing to some of this earlier. So I guess you guys had missed it when I was talking through it. So I, my, my, my mistake. So if we look at a basic growth cycle of a holon, what a holon actually does to some degree as it, as it grows, right? It actually follows the same adaptive cycle. And you, you'll probably recognize this if you abstract far enough from it, that you have this growth phase. You have this growth phase. It's this time of, of great possibility and all kinds of things are happening and you're kind of exploiting or colonizing the landscape. As soon as you figure out kind of what's going on, and I'm, I'm being generic for a reason, right? Because I want you to be able to apply this across your whole life. But, but this also applies to what the U.S. has been up to since 1945, which I'll show you in a sec. Once you kind of like all the beginning of the ecosystem is populated with various strategies, a bunch of failed, but a bunch of succeeded. Now what happens, you have some winners. And now with those winners, they start to double down on their strategies. And that's where the whole system starts to become less resilient because mm -hmm. you, get, you start to get these winners who are now doubling down on their strategies and they're starting to keep all the resources to themselves as they win. A lot of efficiency with this phase so it's not like it's not like there's no good news about these various phases there's good news and bad news about each but but there's a lot of efficiency about this phase but let's be honest it's a phase where on the margin it's increasingly stagnating it's increasingly consolidating the power amongst a few hands the diversity and agility of the system is going down the resources actually the capital in the system is going up but at some point because time doesn't stop the environment keeps changing, things keep changing, uh, you get an upheaval, you get a release, you get, you get the system can no longer adapt, the, 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 the powerful who are owning all the resources in the conservation phase uh, have created an ecosystem which is fundamentally not resilient and you get a break, right? You get, a, you get, a, you get something where the break happens and the internal contradictions, the imbalances, the overall lack of agility of the system can't function given the environmental conditions. And so, boom. And by the way, this is what you're living through right now. This is what you're living through right now. We'll, we'll, I'll go through it in more detail here in a minute. But what happens then is during that period of upheaval, during that time of, of breakage and then regeneration, you start to move into the reorganization phase. And this is a phase where now you have a lot of opportunity right? Because, you know, you can reconfigure resources. Diversity and agility are now going back up. 
resources are beginning to grow again. Um, and one of the things I say here, you probably too small to read this, but, but it requires that a higher synthesis be found that solves the prior contradictions or the contradictions of the prior phase. Now that's really key because when it comes time, and in, in some of my future articles, I'll, I'll, I'll start to unpack some of this in, in more detail. But if, we, but if we said, hey, what does the transformation age look like? Well, we can say what the contradictions it probably has to solve for, right? We may not be able to say exactly how it does it. We may not be able to say what the exact surfaces look like because we'd be wrong or, or, or you know, not right. But, but we can at least say, look, here's the contradictions we face as we come into the transformation age, as we come into a teal form of, of organization. Now, looking at the US cycle, I just, want to say, I just want to say real briefly, Rob, um, whenever I see this graphic, I'm always fascinated by, you know, because what you're, you're, you're showing sort of the trajectory of a social holon. And whenever I look at it, I'm always reminded of um, this looks very similar to how uh, the development of an individual holon is described in spiral dynamics, where That's you right. have like the, 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 the gamma trap and then yeah. the delta surge and the new alpha uh, and all yep. that, which then just sort of recapitulates and recapitulates as we continue our development. So I'm seeing some parallels here between individual development and um, the development of a social holon. Well, that's a really good catch because actually they're identical. The, it, it is, it's the exact same cycle. Now, the only, the only difference, if there is a difference, it is simply because we've, we've opted for a certain kind of crude simplicity in showing the picture a certain way mm. in order to make it digestible, in order to kind of get the point across with this little interactive treatment on, on, a, on a website. Mm -hmm. but, but actually, you know, if you're really looking at it, it's obviously there's a lot more going on because there's cycles within cycles within cycles. Like there's a, there's a version of this going on over the course of like 24 hours and then, and then a week and then, you know, you can play with the context, you can play with, you know, the, the different formations of the social whole on or the social groups. But I'm trying to get across the notion that if you, once you understand the kind of the abstract thing, yes, it does. It applies to basically all, all whole ons, including mm -hmm. individual whole ons. Um, I mean, you could, you I, if we did a version of this on your diet, like everybody's been through a diet, you, you, you could probably map it quite readily to it where it's like, oh yeah, I try a bunch of stuff. Then I stagnate. Then I, then I, like right. crash and I like I hate myself and then I, I reorganize and I get a new journal and I try it again and I mean it's all right yep. there yep that's it there's yep. a reason why this is this is an important thing to understand in the abstract um <clears throat> so then we go to the, the U.S. cycle of hegemony uh again 1945 to 1968 we're on this wild growth curve uh, huge economic progress we've reorganized the world after world war ii uh and actually the, the release of the prior hegemonic transition was 1914, 1915, start of World War I, all the way to 1945, right? It's, it's not just right after the war, it's actually starting with the breakdown of the prior global ideology, which was imperialism. Remember how many empires existed in 1913 that didn't exist by 1922? Mm. Right. That's what World War One did. It reorganized the entire notion of global governance and the background ideology of the entire species. So that happens in 1914 to 1918. Then we get the roaring 20s. Right. This decade of like party, party, party. 1929 hits. We're in the depression for a decade. I mean, people think, you know, three or four years. No, we were in a re huge recession by 1937 and we're into the war 
a few years later. And it's not until the Second World War, which, by the way, the seeds of the Second World War were sown because of the failed accommodations after World War One. So even though they had a chance to sort of go through the release period of the post-World War I period and actually perhaps go into a reorganization that would bring them into a whole other layer at, or a whole other level at that point, they didn't. And, and this is an important thing to notice because this is, our, this is one of our biggest risks in our next 10 years and actually, it's our biggest risk today because we're doing the same thing. We had a chance to do it after 08. We didn't. Obama failed and, 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 and others, right? We went right back to the same playbook. We're going to have a chance now. We are actively failing as we speak. We're going same to the, back to the same playbook. And so the, one of the lessons here is that humans don't learn good. <laughs> like, <laughs> we only take our beating one way, which is you have to give it to us. And it has to be forced upon us because that's the only way we learn anything. And so that's the problem with these complex systems. If you actually just said, hey, guys, you know, put, put a tax on carbon and avoid that whole global warming problem. It's like, no, we'll pass. We'd actually like, you know, we'd like massive tens of millions of deaths and economic depression for two decades. Thanks. So that's it. You know, you have this, you have this, this thing where you actually get choices along the way to reorganize, but we, we, we very rarely take them unless they're forced upon us. Mm. So we have this rapid growth. We have the we have this increasing stagnation of the you know really forty to fifty year period because uh, the nineteen seventies were actually a little bit of a transition between these two here. Um, but Reagan is kind of the hallmark at nineteen eighty onwards. And, I, and now I, I've I've really been on record as saying twenty twenty this is it stake in the ground the Reagan era ended now it actually ended about four weeks ago and it's done. Uh, what we're entering now is a brand new uh, macro cycle which will be fundamentally a release phase. Now it started in 2008. These things overlap, as you might imagine. It's like mm -hmm. not like a totally clean cut, but we're in this release phase. Um, and you'll notice, you know, there was a question that somebody asked me about this session we're doing, uh, like what are some of the political, uh, the political polarities that, that might be involved? I would argue that you had kind of a, uh, an economic progressivism and social conservatism in the first part of this, cycle you that kind of got flipped with both the rise of postmodernity, the the social progressivism progressivism of the late 60s and so we flipped to kind of a progressive a social progressivism but an economic conservatism at least ostensible for the last 40 years and now i think we have a political incoherence like like what's confusing to most people right now is you have trump acting like a bigger socialist than anyone's ever seen but none of his supporters call him on it because they, because for them, it's not a fundamentally, fundamentally ideological sort of position to take. And so there, and, and by the way, the Democrats might end up being the, the, the defenders of the neoliberal establishment here mm -hmm. by the time it all is said and done. And so I think during this release phase right now and, and for the foreseeable future, and certainly for the last several years, you just have this very kind of mishmash where it's politically incoherent and then of course this reorganization occurs uh i, I think it's going to take 10 years at least we talk about what some of the pieces are that really have to get reorganized um uh and it, what the seems, terminal crisis is it seems like there's a lot of relearning that takes place in that release phase where 
we have to slowly somehow begin to sort of begin to identify and dislodge ourselves from political ideologies, economic ideologies that simply don't work anymore. They're irrelevant now. They're, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the wrong language um, for what's, what's you know, transpiring today. And that itself seems like a fairly um, difficult and oftentimes painful process, not just for an individual to kind of go through that um, reassessment of identity and values and view and all of that, uh, but for us to actually do this collectively. Um, without yeah. a whole lot of, you know, inspiring role models as to what the next phase actually looks like. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. One of the, one of the things that I would I would I would uh, I, I guess invite people to, to 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 see some of what I'm talking about as is I is I'm not focusing on the economics because we're being reductionist about this. We're actually focusing on the economics for a very good reason, which is because it is the uh, the sort of the, 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 the mechanism by which the human energy system is collected, stored, transaction, transacted, valued, et cetera, around the world. It's also the place where uh, we see the hegemonic distortions show up most readily. And in particular, we're dealing with a background context of the world today where the core contradiction to get solved is probably, and I said this in the Great Release, and I continue to think it's true, the American, uh, the American dollar as the reserve currency. Um, I will share another, should go back to this piece here. Uh, the American reserve currency is just a, 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 it continues to be a global problem. It's, it's a global problem. It's great for America in some ways that we could talk about, but it's, but it's a real, it's a real problem. So anytime we talk about the economics or anytime we talk about even political preferences, as I've said before, right? Politics is the question of who gets what? Well, who gets what is an economic question to a large degree. There are a lot of things we fight about. They're economics, they're political preferences, but, but they have, they're really kind of, you know, all around the economics of who gets what. And the problem is if the entire backdrop of all of that is occurring within this context, this global context of, of your whole lifetime, in my whole lifetime, of we've known nothing but the American dollar as a reserve currency, setting the whole backdrop, then you really have to understand what that means. And you have to understand how it's both helped and distorted everything else we, we can talk about. Mm. Now, this picture is something I put together as kind of a uh like like an imaginary but not totally imaginary um thing of how my mind works right when i think in cycles when i think of context within context when i think of the the adaptive cycle i just showed you through right up ramp stagnate boom reorganize dip ramp and then and it's growing like up and up and up so my point in doing this was just to invite you into thinking about how does something happening either this week or four years ago, or over the next 12 months, become a microcycle that shifts a polarity, that then bumps a hole on, that changes this and creates a value over here and changes a preference over there. And then of course that, it, it has an effect on the next level hole on above it, and so on and so forth. And so what I wanted to do was kind of show you a set of cycles about how that might look. And, and I'm suggesting some, for example, now down here at the lower level where I'm talking about voter values, 
and for example, kids in cages, I pick something very concrete for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a small issue, but it's, it's small in the grand scheme of things, like all the things we've dealt with the last 10 years or five years. Um, so there's, I mean, there's dozens of these things that you could put down here at this level, right? Dozens of these things from, you know, from, from school shootings to Australia on fire to, um, you know, name whatever your, name whatever your top five or eight or 10, uh, uh, you know, like favorite events are and not just bad ones, but good ones. Like all mm-hmm. of those things are rolling up and changing the world picture. Now let's jump up a layer, something that is definitely something that's going to affect everybody. Great depression of 2021. I'm pretty convinced it's upon us. I'm pretty convinced it's, it's going to happen. Uh, I, 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 I find it very difficult to imagine a way we can avoid it. Um, because it's not fundamentally a problem of just throwing money at, at the problem, right? It's deeper than that. It's, it's more structural. That's something we're all going to live through. Mm-hmm. That right there, that one event is going to be a catalyzing context that has so many ramifications, so much ramifications, not just in terms of the way the world works, in terms of voter preferences and all that, but a whole, yeah, a whole nother generation is going to come of age amongst economic hardship. Because, because the last one was only 11 years ago and it still has messed up the millennials in terms of just getting their feet on the ground and family formation and house ownership and their feeling of stability in the world. Like you have to be able to see this in all four quadrants because this is going to be a dramatic thing that's going to impact the next 10 or 15 years of how this whole world order gets reconfigured. Um, I'm calling this the fifth great awakening. At some point, we are going to have a spiritual revitalization of a global narrative, a global mm. spiritual narrative. I think Integral could play an important role in contributing to that. I think that the United States could play a big role in contributing to that because as screwed up as, the, as, as we are religiously in the United States, I actually think some of, the, some of the best and most ripe contradictions are here in the United States and, and the most sort of ripe to resolve in a way that under hardship, under hardship of a depression, under hardship of generations going, whatever we're doing, it ain't working. You could actually see a spiritual renewal where inside that meta crisis, where we have an identity problem and we have mental health problems and we have this sense we don't know who we are anymore, right? In this terrifying reductionist economic landscape where we don't have any jobs anymore either, where do I find meaning? I think you could see the fifth great awakening in the U.S. Uh, spiritual space, maybe not amongst a certain demographic or a certain value set, but but enough of this coming generation. Those who, by the way, if you look to the top right, are aiming at the transformation age in terms of their own current, uh, you know, kind of mental, emotional, and spiritual makeup. And that's the thing. The younger generation, you don't have to convince them of that. They're already mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. They will be. I mean, they will be the people teaching us what that means in 10 years. Promise you, we'll be, we'll be, we won't be totally irrelevant, but we're going to be a lot more irrelevant than we are today. And I, and I certainly hope that's true. That's I, just, supposed to work. I just want to mention how much I love that framing of um, we have the right contradictions. I think that is such, uh, I, I mean, just, just phrasing that way, I think recontextualizes a lot of the things that we get really, really frustrated about. 
mm. whether we're talking politics or education or you know economics or what have you. Um, if we can actually sort of reframe that and sort of readjust our posture a little bit and be like, you know, this is the right kind of conflict. This is the right <laughs> kind of dilemma um, that's going to force a result one way or the other. Um, and it's another example of like all of this kind of arriving more or less on schedule. Yeah. 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 We, we have a lot of the right kind of wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, and, and so, it, so then again, it's not, it's not hard to imagine a radical U S political consensus, like as polarized as we are today, as you know, and I went through the data in the great release on how polarized we are. And of course that's none of that surprising to any of us now can't even seem to agree on something as, you know, real as, as a virus and a pandemic. Uh, you mean 5G? Sorry. What? I said, you mean 5G, right? <laughs> I know. What is that? Oh, you're not familiar with this? There's, there's, yeah. a, there's a, a school of thought out there that um, the coronavirus is not a virus, but it's actually the, um, the side effects of the new 5G wireless technology that's being implemented oh, yes. around the world. So I'm just having a little fun here. Well, of course, of course there is. Have they started a church yet? <laughs> I mean, it's great. It's, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, the right kind, the right kind of wrong. That's the right kind of wrong. So, and, and so I, I, you know, in my mind, you could actually see like the the tension gets the, the tension gets the worst right before the breakthrough that that's kind of what i'm mm -hmm. trying to continue to point to is if you look at the adaptive cycle the tension is worse always right before the reorganization in fact to a large degree it has to be right uh again just explore your own life it's like eh, the two pounds nah, four pounds mm, six pounds i'm like yeah and then eight pounds i'm pissed off like now i'm getting off to the couch it's like right. the tension's gotta be the thing that just tips it and you don't know where it's going to be, but it's always, it's always the most severe right before the move. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine actually a very serious and, and what might seem today somewhat radical uh, or at least kind of, you know, very, and I'm not even going to say progressive or conservative. I just mean like synthetic, like it moves, it moves to a, another layer of thinking about our problems. I could imagine that kind of political consensus emerging over the next 10 or 12 years as another part of the sort of uplift then do, do, do you do you, Rob, yeah. do you, i'm just real i'm sorry to cut you off um do you think it's possible that corona might actually um sort of hasten that a little bit and the reason i ask is this is something we talked about in our show on saturday is um you know this is the first major world event in my lifetime and probably in most of the lifetimes of the people watching us that has actually affected us behaviorally, every single one of us. I mean, almost, I mean, at least the majority of us who are taking this seriously and are self-quarantining and all that. I mean, even 9-11 didn't have that effect. We felt 9-11 yeah. in our hearts, but it didn't require a lot of sort of reorganization around how we go about our daily lives. This one is one of the first events, I mean, probably the first event in, I mean, I would say since maybe Vietnam and the draft, um, that is being so felt by almost all individuals, not just in this country, but around the world. I'm wondering what kind of political will might be able to get generated simply just out of like the contact that we're having. Climate change is obviously also something that really affects all of us, but that's out there somewhere. And nine times out of 10, it's someone else's problem. Yeah. Whereas Corona is like, okay, this is affecting us. This is affecting my family. This is affecting us in, in our homes. This feels more 
sort of invasive than something like climate change. Um, and again, most importantly, every single one of us is being forced to completely transform our daily lives uh, in order to adjust to this new reality. I'm wondering what kind of innovation and creativity might emerge out of that tension. I just love the fact that, uh, and I've said this for about, well, about four years on Twitter it, in as many ways as I could. I said, it's going to require something that destabilizes the world of the, of, of sort of the, the world of epistemological luxury we've mm. been caught in for a long mm. time is one way to say it. Like until shit gets real, it's very easy to engage in luxury goods, in luxury conflict, in luxury, in, in luxury uh, food fights on Twitter or whatever. And, and what shifts that is reality. In every case, reality shifts it. And so now we're going through something where it does not care what you think. It doesn't care about your political preferences. And if you want to take the risk, fine. You may very well die from it. Uh, or you may kill someone you love from it. Um, and so it's not only cutting through the epistemological luxury, uh, it's also giving us a shared reality to some large degree, shared behavior, yeah. and a shared reference point. To your, to your point, it's a shared reference point. Now we will all be able to say we went through it. It kind of like resets the game clock. Right. Where it's like, ah, okay, we've all shared an experience now again. We all have a common humanity again, right? Now, of course, we're gonna there, there's outliers, and as I said, yeah, there's there's still strange stuff going on in terms of the way people are making meaning of it or what have you. But I think that you're right. I think the amount of of innovation that could come from it, I think the amount of humanity rehumanizing that is gonna come from this is is extraordinary and frankly none too soon because let's again let's look at it through the lens of everything we've been talking about for this last hour which is our crises are all about to be like this this is the first actually let's take the recession of 2008 that was also real and and mostly global but that was that was like that, that was just an appetizer right mm -hmm. now we have this thing Global affects everybody. No getting around it. Now you're going to have a great depression from it. I think. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. Believe me. But I think. Right. And that's also going to affect everybody. Guys, we haven't even got to the big one yet. We haven't even got to global warming yet. We haven't even got to 2 billion climate refugees pouring over the border into all of the wealthy countries in the north because you it's literally uninhabitable and the disease and all of that stuff like this is all just a warm-up for what's coming so i think that in a way we're sort of just going through the preparation we're we're, we're given the gift of getting a chance to rehumanize on a world-centric basis for for what's coming um I'll, I'll stop there. We could keep talking about this a uh, couple of these items, but I also wanted to leave time for questions. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's obviously so many, so many places we can go to from here. Um, I just want to, you to maybe quickly just define a couple other terms on this. Um, yeah. One is really interesting. I think to uh, some people who are watching right now, uh, the Teal New Deal. 
So I was actually uh, happy to be part of a conversation just among a few uh, really, really uh, smart, very, very bright, very, very engaged uh, integralists yesterday. And they're sort of, you know, the amount of sort of creativity we're seeing welling up right now amidst all of this from sort of the bottom up in the uh, integral sort of community right now is really, really inspiring. And I'm hoping we can bring more of that creative energy into shows like this. Um, but these guys are really, really committed towards fleshing out this idea of a Teal New Deal, <clears throat> excuse me, that can actually have legs and that can actually yeah. hopefully be selected for uh, by, you know, sort of the entire value stack. Um, yeah. The idea being anyone who looks at this will be able to sort of find their own values contained within it somewhere, if not their, you know, obviously not their view, but their values will be um, honored and included and, and, you know, will be a part of that document. And um, it's, it's a big conversation, I think, right now in a lot of sort of integral areas. I'm wondering what you think of that. Um, what is the difference between a teal New Deal and what we have currently, the Green New Deal proposal? Uh, and then I'm, I'm, I'd love for you to, uh, to double click on the internet of value. What, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the teal new deal, uh, I mean, you already alluded to what some of what it's going to have to do. It's going to have to integrate, right? The problem with the green new deal is, um, uh, it, it doesn't integrate enough of the entire value spectrum. And, and mm -hmm. moreover, it's, it's not playing the new game. It's not playing a transformation age game. It's putting lipstick on a pig. And, and, and don't get me wrong, like the, the pig needs lipstick and we certainly like Wilbur wants <laughs> lipsticks on it, but the pig's better than ugly we, people. It's yeah, that's right. pig. <laughs> that's, you know, we would, we would like that to happen, but it's actually not the optimal way to go about it. The optimal way to go about it is to do a teal new deal where you actually prepare yourself uh, for, you set the groundwork for the transformation age, mm -hmm. a la the way we did uh, to some extent for the information age with the, the post-war reorganization. So it's more uh, than just sort of top-down social engineering. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, let me, let me talk about something, you know, cause you asked about internet of value. That could be mm -hmm. something you specifically look to target and lead and what the internet of value, and you can look it up. It's, it's something that's going on in uh, parts of the crypto market, but really it's bigger than just uh, crypto. Really what it is is saying, look, if there's a replacement for the U S dollar, what could it be? That's one of the problems people have is just envisioning like, well, you know, we got to have some reserve currency. We've always had one of some sort. I mean, if you go in the modern era, you know, we go back to the gold standard. No, you know, that, that was deflationary. That didn't work. Uh, so what, what could it look like? Well, this is the kind of thing, you know, it may not be this, but this is the kind of thinking that at least gets you to the, to the mental spot where you're like, Oh, I could see, I can actually see a world beyond a single sort of massive reserve currency like the US, or even for that matter, the Euro or the Japanese yen or the Chinese yuan, if, if China ever actually, you know, had, had even a, a remote chance to, to get itself as a reverse currency, they don't. But, and, and what the internet of value says is, well, look, if all we're doing is trading value between each other, what we're doing is we're using the dollar. Am I, do, am I still here? Yeah, you're still there. Oh, okay. Zoom just gave me a notice saying I've been signed out. Oh, um, weird. So, so what it's saying is, look, if, if Corey, you want to trade me pigs to use the example, you want to trade me, you know, pigs from Argentina and I want to trade you potatoes from, uh, you know, Nevada, then we're using the dollar as an intermediating mechanism. 
-hmm. And that may be okay, but at the internet of value, if you actually make those linkages more direct in terms of the exact value that you're, you are transacting, you don't have to use, uh, you don't have to use quite the same level of um, intermediating currency to do it. So no one country has to have the reserve currency. And this is, this is important. It's a technology problem, not a political problem. It's a technology mm -hmm. problem, not a social problem. It's a technology problem, not, a, not, not just a kind of a geopolitical governance problem. And so increasingly, what, I, what was neat about this, a la Bucky Fuller, is this is the kind of thing that can grow up on a decentralized basis. And just by virtue of adoption, it can actually displace something like the dollar in a way that then allows for uh, companies, countries, families, da, 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 to trade value. They still have dollars. They still have won. They still have gold. They still have Bitcoin. They still have all that stuff. But it acts as kind of like a, almost like an HTTP system for transacting value for the 21st century. Now, this may sound geeky. Actually, it is totally geeky. But, but it's a huge deal if you consider what it means for the U.S. Because the U.S. and everything we're living through the last many years, as I've said, is a result of a set of, of problems that exist because of the reserve currency. It's stripped out our middle class. It gives us cheap products at Walmart and Costco, but it, but it kills our manufacturing base. Um, it puts us in a position where we're always having to be the debtor nation, by definition, because we've got to keep supplying dollars to the, to the world. It allows us to keep financing our military spending. So we have a pro, kind of a pro-military uh, political orientation coming out of D.C. I mean, there's, there's so many effect, things that it affects. So that's the kind of thing that, if it came to pass, could be a real game changer. And again, it's leading up to the highest level holonically here, which is the transformation age, which is this next level of reorganization at the next level of the civilizational stack that we talk about um, here, which you guys have probably seen, which is really the evolution of the actual operating systems. Now, this is the, this is the furthest view out. This is the 50,000 year view of evolution underway in all four quadrants as we move into teal, teal integralism, an integrative pluralism uh, in our consciousness and our philosophy as our economic behavior and associated currency becomes transformational and an internet of value uh, as we have new governance systems and our new, you know, new social organization and then new requirements in terms of what's happening in the lower left, like new actual emergent values that are holding our tribes at different layers of the social whole on together uh, come online because they have to, they're just, there's the way of meeting life conditions. And I see the meta crisis as, as driving a lot of that, that, that piece in particular. Hmm. Well, damn, my man, hot fire. This has been um, an awesome presentation. Um, you know, I think you gave us a very sort of uh, comprehensive meta view here. Um, and it's a wonderful map, I think, of, um, you know, the, the possible paths ahead of us. And I'm thinking what I want to do now is I want to actually start opening this up to some of our, um, our audience. Yeah. So if you guys have questions, I'll go through the spiel real quick. And I'll ask you a question um, while we wait for them to, to, to come online, Rob. But um, uh, just so everyone knows, if you have a question, again, you have to be in the Zoom app with us. Uh, two ways you can do it. You can either raise your hand, which lets us know you want us to turn on your camera, 
and you can talk with us. We'll have a little back and forth, or you can hit the Q&A button and uh, you can submit a written question. We'll read it on the air um, and answer it that way. But my question, just to kind of get us started, Rob, is I, I kind of want to go from this great big map to you know the territory of our day-to-day -day lives in quarantine. Um, and the reason I'm asking this is, you know, for people like me, and I think probably for people like you, when we're dealing with any level of intensity, sometimes having these maps can actually help a lot because it sort of contextualizes the pain. It's like, okay, this is, this is why I'm burning those calories right now, right? Because yeah, this is, yeah. I'm plugging it into a, 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 a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose that's, that's bigger than me. Um, and that works really well for certain people in certain typologies. Other people get a little bit annoyed by that. And they're like, okay, this is a bit of a distraction. What can I do right now? What do I need to be doing right now? What is mine to do? So that would be sort of my question for you. And, and I think you partially answered this earlier, just by bringing more awareness to these micro cycles that we are a part of every single day and how they, I love how you framed that, how it sort of pushes one polarity a little bit this way and nudges that, you know, just, it, it plays with the tension a little bit. Um, so I thought that that was, that, you know, just bringing more awareness, more mindfulness, more, um, embodied awareness really to how we participate with these microcycles and how they might accumulate. Um, but beyond that, what can I do? What can anyone who's listening to this do? And I think even more importantly, what can we as integralists do together? What role, uh, can we play sort of in this unfolding? What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Thank you for the question. Um, trying to get back to this. And this, this is something that uh, we shared on Inner Life. So I think it's a good reference for it. Mm -hmm. uh, we shared on Inner Life several weeks ago, and some of you might have missed it. But I, but I think that it's a good place to start because it's very concrete. It's very, it's very practical. It's very immediate. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's integral. It, it looks at it through the lens of four quadrants and says, well, we're going to be living through dis some disruption. We're living through disruption now. We think it's probably going to last a few months, but guess what? If, if the data coming out of Asia is any indication, uh, South Korea, Japan, and, and China in particular, early indications are be they might have to go back in, might have to re-quarantine at least parts. We don't know how many cycles we're going to have to kind of ride the wave on here of go in, come out, go in, come out until at least there's some version of herd immunity. Uh, so we, so we very uncertain future. And so um, this is what we had published on integral life that I invite you all to look at. Maybe we can share a link later, but mm -hmm. um, the, in the upper left, I think we had this idea that uh, like this mindful attendance, you know, pr prepare your mind and emotions to attend mindfully to the fear the uncertainty and the changing life conditions ahead. And here's some specific like things just to bear in mind, mm -hmm. you know, daily, you know, affirm daily your intention to attend to your emotions mindfully, be aware of devolving towards fear and survival needs. I mean, they, they live in all of us. They're real, but be aware of it. Be aware of where you are as you negotiate the stack of your needs, as you, as you negotiate, move up and down the hierarchy. Of, of needs and values. Um, commit to helping others remain present and abundant, your children, your friends, your community, uh, and, and parents and others. Practice gratitude. Uh, I find uh, 
I had maybe 15 minutes yesterday. It was not a good, it was like, you know, it's like one of those moments that you're talking about. It's like, it hit me kind of dark, just wasn't having a, a great moment at that time. And, and so what I did, so I literally just stopped, I took a deep breath and I started counting, literally counting my blessings, counting my gratitude. I said, oh wow, look at the roof over my head. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic roof. <laughs> I'm like, and I, I heard the air conditioner going on. I'm like, oh my God, that's air conditioning. That is so nice. Because I was in Thailand and we didn't have air conditioning all the time. And in Paris, we certainly didn't have it. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm fresh off the world experience where a lot of this stuff is in fact things I'm grateful for as we speak. And I thought about the fresh water in my refrigerator. I thought about my children sleeping and being safe. And, and so all of a sudden, all that just flipped. It was like, man, I haven't had a bad day in my whole life. <laughs> and it's true. Cool. I just, I just haven't. So yeah. So practicing um, simplicity. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, because that's the, the flip side of going to survival needs is also survival gratitude. Like all mm-hmm. the things that are perfect actually right now. Like mm-hmm. I could live for 10 years this way, right? I mean, I, you know, I mean, compare me to somebody that's alive 500 years ago, I, I'd, be, I'd be richer than the richest king. Uh, I mean, forget 500, maybe 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like you got, you know, a full fridge and Netflix. <laughs> what else do you want? <laughs> Lots of video games too. That's right. Um, let's see, bring awareness to many new voices that will start to chirp. The voice of fear, voice of anxiety, voice of loneliness, the voice of boredom, the voice of pessimism. Um, and I, Corey, I don't need to necessarily read all this to you guys, but, but the point is that, and you guys can see this, but, but there's specific things there. And then on the, on the upper right, there's a readiness factor. Your behavior and your material supplies will help you stay healthy and resilient or weather the disruptions and the social distancing and isolation. In the lower left, abundant service. Now is the time to bring your lifetime of practice into service to others. Keep your heart open to the needs of others at a time when fear and uncertainty will be high. It's like this community, if I'm, I'm looking at you guys, mm. your job is to take care of yourself in all the ways that we're talking about so that you can actually go serve others. That's your job. Your whole life has been a dress rehearsal for this moment. You've been given all this fantastic lifetime of wisdom and practice and privilege. This is it. It's game time. And the reason you have an ILP is to navigate this moment, not only for yourself, but for others who can't or who don't, weren't equipped with that. That's why you had an ILP. That's why you were given your development. I love it. All that work that we've been doing to grow up, to wake up, to clean up, all of that, I think, comes to fruition now in how we show up and how we show that's up, right. not just for ourselves, um, but for each other. And that's, that's, that's beautifully said. Yeah. And then resilience. Uh, prepare yourself and how you interface with life supporting systems to weather a period of volatility and change. Don't think this goes away quickly. You're going to hear on the news. You're going to hear with, with people. Here's what I want people to understand. There's a lot of people who make a lot of money on you believing this all goes back to normal. And I, I want to be really clear. I don't fault them for, uh, for hoping that that's true. We all hope that's true. But I also want you to be prepared for it not being true because mm. I think there's waves of disruption that are coming. I think they're with us. I think they're coming. I think they'll continue to come for a while. And as I said, if this is just a dress rehearsal for some of the other stuff that, that comes, 
So to use it as an opportunity to, to kind of reconfigure whatever areas of your life allow you to also get more resilient. In a large way, as I said, I mean, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I saw a lot of this coming because I've been writing about it for years. I was ready for this. Haven't been massively disrupted yet, actually. Mm-hmm. Why? Because kind of had already been practicing it, already been, already been doing a lot of the things that was necessary to surf this wave, really, you know, hasn't really been that, that disruptive to me yet. Uh, and, and what that allows me to do then, to circle back to the last point, is then show up in a, in a particular way. Uh, and that's, you know, I think that's, that's the important point. Beautiful. Oh, thank you for that. I'm going to bring Mark Evans on over. If Zoom lets me. Zoom is, you know, I got to say, I'm pretty impressed with uh, how these guys are managing their bandwidth right now because suddenly the entire planet is on zoom yeah really and uh, i'm glad we haven't been uh, chat bombed i guess that's a thing that's going on right now mm. which is a little concernful because like my daughter is doing is using zoom for school now and it's like yeah. i don't i don't i don't want you to be zoom bombed no mark how are you i'm good good to see you again yeah so i got a question for rob um, where are you putting your financial assets or where have you already put them since you've been preparing for all these years? Yeah. So I was out of the market entirely, uh, basically at the end of last year. Uh, so didn't ride any of this, this latest crash down. In fact, right now I'm just short. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend that to anybody cause you got to watch it real carefully and you got to be, you know, basically trading by the day to, to do that. So if I, if, I mean, what I think, uh, what well, I think. Did you go to cash? Yeah, I was, I was basically in cash. Uh, I have a couple of uh, rental properties that uh, I thought about selling last year. I decided not to. In fact, I mean, this is going to sound a, a little bit, what's the word? Um, you know, like I, I, was, I was thinking, I was actually thinking ahead to what happens in this downturn. Uh, and so my tenants are tied to government income. I mean, that was, that was not by accident that I was thinking about the fact that even there, if things really get bad, that there's certain kinds of sort of income sources. Ultimately, where this goes is the government is the only customer. The government's the provider of credit. The government is the provider of the currency. So went to cash. Uh, I've been buying physical gold for years. Uh, so I always recommend people just as an, I don't look at it as an investment. I just look at it as insurance, uh, to have physical gold. Uh, if you bought, if you bought long bonds, you of course did really well the last, you know, year, year and a half. Uh, so if you were in bonds at some point, the bond market will sniff out the inflation, uh, that may be coming down the line as the dollar. Uh, the dollar goes down and the, uh, you know, it's going to, the, the bonds are going to want to sell off, but the, the Fed has already said they're going to buy bonds to control, to basically control the yield curve. They're going to buy long bonds. Fed's buying everything. I mean, that's the crazy part about what we're in. We're, we're entering, I mean, we, Fed is acting more socialist than any time in American, I mean, like everybody, everybody talks about the fear of socialism from Bernie. They don't realize that, that the government under Trump and the Federal Reserve has just nationalized the capital market. I mean, the only thing you haven't touched yet is, is, is total junk debt 
and uh, and and certain private equity uh, assets, but they basically bought everything else up, uh, and they're probably going to start buying stocks soon too. So anyway, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but but yeah. So I think what happens here is cash, uh, gold is probably a good hold if it's physical. Um, at some point, you know, this that we're we're in the middle of a stock market crash now, obviously. This rebound that we just saw is a classic bear market rebound. It's going to crash again. It's going to crash lower. Uh, and that's going to take a while for it to wash out. You're talking about months and months, probably, of capitulation of the stock market continuing to crash before we finally hit bottom. At some point, once that happens, entering into stocks will then finally, and I haven't been in stocks for many years because they've been, it's been a total bubble. Uh, it'll finally actually be a good time to enter them at that point because A, they'll be cheap and B, stocks usually do okay in the face of inflation. We probably won't get inflation for a while yet uh, despite how much money is being flooded into the system. Um, the dollar is very strong right now. That's actually deflationary. Uh, and that's going to continue for a while. And so uh, at some point, getting into stocks would be, would be probably a good move once all the pain is out of the system. Uh, you know, the, 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 it's all been washed out. Uh, and then it also, I mean, totally depends on your personal situation and like, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. But Okay, thanks. I don't know how good of an answer that was because I don't, you know, there's obviously a lot there. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for the question, Mark. Appreciate it. We'll see you next show. Yeah. All right. Let's see here. Pat, I'm going to bring you on over. So you're being promoted. Congratulations on the promotion. You are now a panelist. Hi, hey, Rob. Hi. Oh, hey, uh, thank you, you, Rob. I'm well. I'm well. Good. Thank you. Um, enlightening, obviously. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you. But what comes to mind is... Um, in a practical sense, is um, you know you always look at it. Okay, all of this is going on. Do a SWOT analysis, right? What are the strengths, uh, opportunities, weaknesses, threats that we have? Um, so that's that's one thought. You know, what are the major categories that we can look at? Uh, obviously, a lot of smart people probably already looking at it. You know, in the financial, we're hoping that uh, we still have uh, able people to lead us and take us in the right direction. But, you know, you would be to look at, you know, even the environmental aspects of it. It's just such a tough subject, you know, that even that we're having a hard time getting our, our arms around. Um, so I'm kind of hoping just uh, from uh, how do we influence this, you know, as a, maybe as a group, do we pick a couple of two, three, four topics, uh, do a SWAT, and then maybe look at, I know you've been traveling this last year, if you've seen any um, best practices, you know, like, like I came from California and I now live in South Carolina, but I always thought California, they, you know, they kind of had some uh, progressive ideas. I mean, there were some things in the environment, particularly, there were a lot of, uh, um, um, you know, practical steps and new laws and and uh, requirements, regulations that were being implemented that I thought were definitely a lot better than what's going on here in South Carolina. So um, I'm looking just from your experiences, any 
you know, I hate to, I, I like to be a part of the solution. You know I mean? Obviously it's pretty, pretty scary to see where we're at and kind of where we're going. And then um, I think individually, uh, you know, into God life kind of helps us. Obviously, you know, we're meditating, we're staying centered and all of that stuff. Right. Some of us, you know, have the ability to uh, exist financially, all of that stuff, but uh, yeah, more on the system side, what can we do? Mm. Well, I, I think, I, I would answer that the same way I would answer any question that is both specific, but also abstract, which is when you're saying, how do you want to transform the system? I'd say, start where you are. Who are you? What's your background? What's your geography? What's your nation? What's your experience? And what's your desire? And then when you start to think about everything we've talked about for the last hour and a half, what the opportunity is, what the, what the contradictions are, what the problems are, and now we're right in it, right? We're right in the crisis. Well, guess what? Every crisis has got opportunity. Um, I've already got something underway where we're looking at face masks. They just need it. So I've got, I've got conversations going on under, underway about can we get injection molded face masks to several hospitals that I know? Because um, they would order 30 or 40,000 of them tomorrow if we had them. Um, now there's other people doing that. And that's great. It's not a very, I mean, it's not very innovative. It's not very, but it's certainly useful in the short term if we can figure out how to do it. But, but, but that's the thing is there's going to be a million of those things lying around. You just have to look at them and say, well, what do you want to contribute? How do you want to, you know, get involved? And yeah, I mean, you could do things on terms of community coordination. You could do things in terms of national policy. You could do things in terms of technologies that help. You could do things in terms of job sharing. I mean, all of the things that come, come along with a new, new set of life conditions are all opportunities. Three years ago, I almost started a company called Resilio. Resilio was going to do nothing but be a network for resilience in the face of a global catastrophe. It was going to be designed for this moment. And that idea is not less relevant because we're going through this. It's more relevant because there's, you know, there's going to continue to be stuff that's, that's needed. Now, that's an informational problem, the way I conceived of it. It's like, yes, we have a resource issue if you run out of toilet paper or Whole Foods or whatever. But really what's, what's happening is we have a failure to coordinate. We have a coordination problem and an informational problem. And so in the midst of these kinds of things, I was starting to think about what could a community do to itself be resilient amongst a group of people who are already inside that, inside that community. Those kinds of things, I mean, there's going to be a lot of that kind of opportunity that, that pops up once somebody says, well, okay, here's, what, here's how I want to contribute. And then actually from back to the point of view of practice, like what can you do and, and feel good about? The moment you attack something head on, you feel better about it. The moment mm -hmm. you dive in, you say, well, look, you know, it is what it is, but now I'm just adapting and now I'm riding the big wave and I'm going to address it head on. The moment you do that, your soul feels better. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the question. That was, uh, that was a great question. And, you know, Rob, most of the questions I'm looking at right now are sort of on that theme. What, what, what is, again, I've, I've phrased this before, is what is the shiny red button that I can push? And the yeah. problem with answering that question is that button <laughs> looks different and you find it in different places for every single person who asks that question. And I think the only sort of universal answer we can give is engage more deeply. Yeah. In whatever it is that you've already engaged in. Um, I think we talked about this last time you and I got together, but like figure out where your skin is actually in the game yeah. and double down on that. 
and um, just just double, triple, quadruple commit yourself to um, creating more goodness, beauty, and truth, however and wherever you can. And I wish we had a more specific, again, I wish we had like a, you know, push this button and it'll have this result and you can track it and here's the metrics of it. And I, I, I wish that was the reality of these things. Um, but it, it's, it's, again, it feels more like a wisdom question than uh, an actual practical question. Yeah, there's no silver bullet, unfortunately. And yeah. that's the kind of, uh, you know, even those who end up having what they think is silver bullets end up using their power to create, configure solutions that end up having all kinds of unintended consequences mm -hmm. that not, are not always, not always the best. And so one thing just to notice is that anytime we take, um, we, we bring, and I, I want to be, I want you to hear this pretty carefully. When we bring orange complexity of mind to a problem, remember what orange complexity of mind, not orange surfaces about money and all that crap, right? I'm talking about orange complexity, which is we, we think of the world as a single world, a single reality. Uh, hold on one sec. Hey guys, I'll be there in a sec. Um, a single world, I think I locked them out. Single world, single reality, and we're now going to design a silver bullet for it, right? The, that complexity is not high enough and we need to move to teal where solutions are more emergent, where there's more experimentation, where the complex system is sort of self-healing and what have you. So there's a different quality of mind of those two mindsets. Uh, Kara, yeah. I'm bringing you on over. So uh, get yourself ready. Hi, Kara. Hello. Hi, Kara. Hi. Hey, my first time uh, watching one of these and uh, calling in. So. Um, Thanks for taking okay. my hand. Hey, I, I was wondering if there's a taking into account of the where we are consciousness wise on planet Earth now going through this. Like, for example, I, I read a piece that David Brooks wrote for the New York Times about and it was called um, Pandemics Take Away Compassion. And like people were all sort of scrabbling and, you know, just trying to every man for himself kind of way of operating and there wasn't a lot of talk about it because people weren't proud about how they how they um conducted themselves afterwards and that's not happening today mm -hmm. and is like and the other thing about that is is it is it possible rob that this whole transformation could come more quickly than it has in the past because things seem to be kind of accelerating as time goes on yeah. So taking the second part first, it's certainly possible. I mean, things that I was predicting in the great release, even three and a half years ago when I was writing so far, some of the key predictions have, have been, have been true, but I was thinking they were further out. And so one of the okay. things I don't remember who said it, but future comes at you faster than you expect. And all of a sudden, right. And so it could be that some of these contradictions hit us just in the next few years and we start to go through a much more rapid reorganization than I'm anticipating. Totally possible. Uh, and to be honest with you, I mean, I think, I think something like the backdrop of our social fabric underneath Trump would have some, would deserve some credit for us saying, God, that sucked. We're ready for something new. 
that yeah. actually in some kind of perverse way that he's, he's presented us with so much vitriol and so much contradiction and so much hardship that actually it acts as an accelerant in the face of- It's a strong contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and contrast. Yeah. So the other thing is I just want to put in a word. I, I mean, I'm a woman and I don't hear a lot of women in, in this in, in integral circles too much, although Diane is, is um, anyway, there's, there's some. But anyway, especially amongst the younger guys, it's like, oh, there's all these guys. Anyway, um, and, and I'm an artist and I love to paint like really, really exquisite beauty. And so I, I just want to put a word for like there being a place for that in this transition. Because I know when it gets down to like, are we going to be able to eat and have a shelter and not be sick and have healthcare and all that, that sometimes beauty goes out the window. But I just, I don't like, I don't know. I just want to, I just want to throw this into the mix. The, people the are going to think, people are going to think we, we paid you to tee this up. Corey, take it away. Yeah, well, it's, it, it is kind of funny. You should say that. Um, I'm actually uh, working right now and developing a new series uh, with an artist friend of mine. Her name is uh, Gaia Orion. And she's going to be conducting a number of interviews with uh, a whole bunch of artists uh, that have been featured on Integral Life in the past and some new artists as well. Uh, And that's basically what we're going to be um, focusing on. We're going to be talking about how art and beauty and creativity and innovation, this, this spark that is inside all of us, inside of our hearts, inside of our souls, um, is just waiting to sort of come online in a, a really, really big major way. And we awesome. wanted to create a series that would help um, scaffold that for people and would help sort of um, invite people uh, to step more fully into their own creativity. Um, so that is something that we are actively working on right now. I've, we're, we're just sort of finalizing things over the last couple of days. So um, very auspicious timing. And Carl, I don't know if you oh. know, but we, 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 had the, we had the art galleries on the website. We've always been huge fans of the art that comes out of the community. Uh, I mean, if I had my druthers, I would never talk about systems or economics or any of this stuff. I mean, I actually <laughs> love the aesthetics, to be honest with you. I love the aesthetics. I love, I mean, I'm a seven, Enneagram seven. So I, you know, I'm like a golden retriever with the aesthetics. I love, I love beauty. I love the, 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 the sensual experience. And that is an, it's, I'm really glad you brought it up. Thank you for, for saying so. It's just extraordinarily important that we keep beauty in, in the forefront. And every time I, in fact, I just posted on Twitter yesterday, a picture of a cactus with this beautiful pink flower growing out of it. It just struck me. I was walking, you know, my, my mid quarantine day, daily walk and this little cactus. And it's like, there it is life, boom, spring. Yeah. And this most it's gorgeous right color. And I thought, my God, look at you. You just, you're like, your thumb and your nose at the world. <laughs> yeah, so the, great. The, North, the Northern Hemisphere, you know, spring is bursting out and, and the, you know, it's not, the, nature doesn't really care. But I also, I just want to say that I, there is, I have a really, really broad definition for beautiful and that is, or for beauty, and that is like lots of what's happening interaction wise is in, mm. like in between human beings in the midst of this is incredibly beautiful. Mm. I love I love John O'Donohue's definition of beauty and that is anything in the presence of which you feel more alive. Well, that's great. Love it. Yeah, that's lovely. So, anyway, and I was going to say, you know, relative to your question about the consciousness and compassion, our just comment was, yeah, we're seeing we're seeing great expressions of uh, a real a real beautiful humanity come out everywhere and social media what a what a gift social media is finally 
I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's, it's great all along the way. Right. But it's, it's at a lot, you know, signal to noise has been tough, but, but, but finally it's like, wow, social media, isn't it wonderful to see the gorgeous fabric of humanity rise to the occasion and, uh, and, and the per it's the perfect thing for the moment. Mm. Yeah. Well, right next to the brightest light lies the shadow. So there you have the internet trolls in the midst of everything else. So, you know, there's no defeating it. We have to just uh, have higher consciousness or something. I don't know. Yep. The right kind of contradictions. Just Just ask them what they're afraid of and tell them that you'll love them no matter what. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Awesome conversation. Oh, thank you so much. Be part of it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And just to, you know, to mention, um, you know, uh, creativity, making art, it's also just such a great way to cope with um, so much of this, so much of the fear and the anxiety. And, uh, you know, us here in Integral Land, we're sort of always thinking about these things. We're always thinking about what is our next show going to be about? What does our audience want to hear? You know, who does our audience want to hear from, et cetera. And I find it um, that as that pressure sort of continues to build, I'm spending more time seeking solace in my wood shop just you know people yeah. are getting sick of me plugging this stuff but you know i've been like pumping these guys out um and it just awesome. it, it feels good you know what i mean and it feels good to like be able to to create something that you can hold and touch and feel and to feel your your own skills developing um in real time and it's 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 a blessing so i'd encourage everyone find some artistic expression that's meaningful to you, uh, watercolors or drawing, you know, whatever it might be, um, and, and immerse yourself in it. Uh, you, Lord knows you got some extra time right now. And it's worth pointing out here that part of what Corey's uh, alluding to is the fact that we've been on one side of a polarity for a long time in the information age, which happens to be newospheric centric. I mean, we, we're immersed in digital media, we're immersed in cable TV, we're immersed in text messaging, we're immersed in things we read. It's, it's all kind of nuospheric. And I'm not saying that none of us get our hands dirty. We certainly do. We have our art, artistry, we get in the kitchen or whatever it might be. But what this is forcing us is to really push to that other end of the spectrum and re-own the visceral, re-own the material in a way that our forefathers didn't have to because they weren't in the information age. Mm. So let's just notice that part of what the information age does as its own background context is push us to one side of that polarity. And now we're having a forced recapture of the other side of the polarity. And that's another thing we can notice is going to come out of this where you can, and when I talk about like the fifth grade awakening, I I think that there's things like that that are just going to happen naturally by virtue of the discovery people go through. They're like, Whoa, life is actually better if I keep some of those habits and practices that I developed. Beautifully said. No, it, yeah, absolutely. Um, creating art is an embodiment practice. And Lord knows we need more embodiment than ever right now. Uh, Thomas Hetty, I'm bringing you over. Hey, Thomas. Hey, how are you? This is wonderful. Uh, Rob, I'm glad to hear you're a fellow seven. And, uh, <laughs> I, I got to meet in Budapest four years ago. And I have this, this is all I have of her artwork that I could afford at the time. But uh, so my question's basically about the possible, the already begun Teal New Deal. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how much might be coming from the top down, how much from the bottom up, give some specific examples and maybe relate some of that to other large system series like Panarchy or something. Yeah. Um, 
So in part three of the great release, I get into what is, you might say a philosophical architecture to answer that question. Um, and, and so I would encourage you to look at that. It gets into things like, how do we have a politics, a better whole part politics? How do we have a politics of polarities that acknowledges polarities? How do we have a politics that recognizes how to balance uh, purpose and autonomy and freedom? Because once you set up with, with the right architecture, the, the right kind of philosophical framework, and I'm not talking about the philosophies of old, all of which need to be understood by political scientists and people that understand it far better than I do. I mean, like that all needs to also be in the conversation, but, but then they need to incorporate what the integrative, the integrative pluralist philosophies like integral meta theory are pointing out, which is that these things need to be integrated. These things need to be, these meta distinctions need to be, to be uh, in the conversation. Because now once you have that as a philosophical backdrop of your political project, nationally, let's say, then when you look at a specific policy, its, it's deficiencies show up real fast. Its hmm. deficiencies show up real fast in terms of like, where is it balancing the power? Is that appropriate? Is it increasing resilience and anti-fragility or is it not? Is it fit for purpose of the kind of VUCA world we're entering, volatile uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Um, does it allow for uh, decentralized freedom of movement? Um, so on and so forth. Does it, does it navigate the polarities that are inherent there properly? So in order to get concrete, we'd have to actually look at a specific set of policies, campaign finance reform, healthcare, da, 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 da. and I actually I do that a little bit sure. in, in that. But basically what I provide is the beginning of a cheat sheet for how to think about what a teal political rubric might have to accomplish because it has to, and I also did this a little bit in, uh, in my keynote uh, on uh, never been better, never been better, never felt worse, I think is what it's called. And it was going through like, what does a teal operating system have, the, the contradictions it has to resolve. So we're gonna go through that same analysis when we think about what a political project in the country, you know, has to do as well. It has to get ready for a new kind of immigration consensus, obviously, so on and so forth. So I, I know that's probably not satisfactory because we need to pick a specific topic, but there's a lot of meat there in that sandwich and you could take a look at that and feel free to, you know, hit me back when you've done so. Okay, excellent, thank you very much. Thank you, Thomas. All right, we have one more person with their hand raised. Ponder East. Come on over, Ponder. Ponder East, you with hey, us? Can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. How are you doing? Thanks for joining Ponder. us. Ponder, good. Hey guys, thanks for taking it. Um, yeah, real quick. Um, how do you guys imagine the great release will affect education broadly and more specifically like K through 12 in the United States over the next 12 months and over the next two to 10 years? And I'm asking as a musician and high school teacher. I think in the near term, it's going to shake up the, uh, well, for obvious reasons, it's going to shake up the sense of both what's required and what's possible um, in the mind of the parents in particular, and probably also the mind of the, the teachers, because they may not have 
they may not have wanted to be in a spot where they're teaching remotely online, but now they're going to have to. And so I think that just by virtue of that intersection between the parents understanding what the capabilities and limitations of online learning are and the teachers having some experience with it, maybe, you know, just, you know, compulsory or, or forced upon them that that will probably shift some conversations on what is, what is possible. Uh, I think those are the short term effects, the longer term effects. I think uh, we're going to, well, let me say the next 10 years, I, I think this is going to go hand in hand with the economic progressivism, which I think we are officially in. As of four weeks ago, we are now the most economically progressive we will be in a generation. There's going to be printing presses running. There's going to be as much money being spread out as possible. We're going to, you know, never hear a big government critique again, at least for, you know, many years. And that's probably going to represent a sea change in terms of the way that education is, uh, is being funded uh, just by virtue of the fact that everybody's getting money. So education will, will get a bunch of money um, too, because it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a necessity. So we may see a, we may see a phase shift there in terms of the, 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 well, let's call it the generation long fight we've been into so far where the government has been stripping down support for public universities or, you know, public, you know, public school systems or what have you. Um, not to say there aren't hard, hard days ahead. Now, I think that the, the, the real, I guess, answer or the, or the exciting answer, I think, and I, again, I get into this in part three of the great release as well, is I think we end up moving towards a deliberately developmental civilization. I mean, borrowing from Bob Keegan, where he talks about a deliberately developmental organization, I think what we need is a deliberately developmental civilization. And I, I'm not saying that I necessarily think that's evenly distributed across every country or every geography, but I think that in the, in, particularly in the countries that are already have a degree of wealth, already fairly advanced economically, I think the conversations begin to change about how do we train our young people for the world that they're going to inhabit and that's a whole nother set of skills that are meta skills on top of your classic curriculum. I, I did it. This was the, actually the topic of my 2000, to some degree, the topic of my 2012 TED talk about how do we, what do we need to be doing as, as adults and raising our kids to prepare them for the transformation age. We're going to need higher empathy, for example. We're going to need higher mindfulness. We're going to need higher discernment. Like these are trainable skills. We're going to need innovators. We're going to need people who have, um, who have, who can balance out the the agency of the individual uh, and the pioneering spirit of the individual with a deep sense of community and who know how to build psychological safety within that community so that they can lead. Like these are these are knowable and definable skills, and there are certainly some school systems that I've seen around the world that are, you know, are on us, um, you know, it goes beyond just growth mindsets or, or beyond just uh, project-based learning uh, or, you know, makers, maker shops and that kind of thing where they're really beginning to think almost in a teal way about like, okay, how do we create full spectrum adults who are prepared, really prepared to lead the way that they need to in the 21st century? It's certainly how we've been raising our children. I mean, to the best of our ability and we, we homeschool. So, um, it's, you know, we are the teachers. 
and so I, you know, this is near and dear to, to our heart. And I, you know, I've said for a long time, you have the hardest job in the world. I mean, you and nurses, right? Public teachers and nurses have the hardest jobs in the world, hands down, in my view. I mean, every, every social dilemma that we could talk about over the last many years comes into your door every day or gets carried in the door every day and unlimited resources and a certain kind of system constrained thing you're expected to solve for it. And then, Oh, by the way, test for it, you know, in this ludicrous way, it's just, it's, it's so asinine as to defy imagination. Like only, only a society as rich as, as we are could be as dumb as we are to, to, uh, to, to create that as the system. Right. But I think all of that's got to change. It's all going to, it's all going to break under its own contradictions because it's going to have to. Well, I appreciate you saying all that. I especially like what you said about the deliberately de developmental thing and Bob Keegan's work and how important that is. So thanks guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, thank you. And, you know, just to um, double click on what Rob's saying, you know, we, we sort of took a moment in the beginning of the show to pay tribute to all the first responders out there, particularly um, in healthcare, but also you guys, man, um, y'all have been scrambling behind the scenes, uh, way out of your comfort zones yeah. uh, in order to support and provide for our children. And I just want to say, you know, thank you and thank um, all the teachers out there. This is, I mean, it's extraordinary to see what you guys are doing and to see um, the resilience that you're demonstrating uh, and the, the, just the dedication that you have to our kids. Um, it's, and if anything else, we have a whole bunch of like 70 year old school teachers learning things like zoom and Skype for the first time. And that's kind of <laughs> cool too. Yeah. Been there yesterday. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah. Thank you, Ponder. All right. I think we have time for one more question, Rob. Great. So it's even stone street. Come on over, buddy. Hey, Steven. Hey, how's it going? Good to hear from you. Hear you. Um, my question is in regards to uh, regional development and how we, uh, what's your thoughts in, in regards to developing bioregional economies? And uh, I know I think the idea of decentralization is key as well as also we're going to see a lot more government um, action. But on the ground level, building from the bottom up, um, it both bringing together, how do you merge consciousness, um, evolution, and helping people evolve uh, in the kind of emergent strategy and development of bioregional communities? And how, we, how do we do that? And what do you see as some of the key aspects to doing that work? Yeah, so let me take the first part of the question. Sure. Let me take it. Let me take it in order. Um, I've, I've actually been talking to a friend about this for many years who, who runs economic development for a region. And I've been telling this friend and we've been in conversation about it. I said, look, everything that most of these organizations, these economic development organizations are doing is they're, they're building their, they're putting their ladder on the wrong wall. They're climbing their ladder on the wrong wall. And they're only going to find out about that when it's too late. Uh, they're trying to recruit startups. They're trying to recruit companies as employers. They're trying to do all the classic kind of, um, you know, industrial and maybe informational age economic development. I said, that is not the hard problem, is not the scarce resource. And when you get caught fl flat footed, you're going to uh, not be ready to adapt to the moment. And that moment is now upon us. Mm. What, I, what I have been arguing is that the economic development organizations should be 
trying to build anti-fragile communities. And the way they do that is they reconceive their mission as uh, how do we create, and in all the ways you're talking about, how do we create an internally sustainable economy within our region, whether that region be, uh, you know, Portland, Oregon, or it be, uh, you know, Alberta, Canada, or it be in, you know, Madrid, Spain, whatever. How do we, how do we put together the linkages? Remember I was talking about Resilio, the, 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 the resilience platform that I was talking about. And that was going to rely mostly on local interlinkages to do that. And I think that, uh, I think that same thing is available to, um, to a community. I mean, any community right now that has dealt with a shortage of masks or PPE, any community that's dealt with a shortage of water or certain material goods should solve that in the next six months. You have the factories, you have the need, you can figure out the tax structure, you can get it done, do it. No community should ever be caught flat-footed at, the, at needing the federal government to step up to help them in this kind of situation again. I could go down the line and say the same thing for the banking. The banks shouldn't be insolvent if the Fed doesn't step up and support them. The banks should be able to step forward and provide the financing, lending, and liquidity needed on a community level hmm. to keep those businesses alive. Just go down the list and think about all the ways that you need to build a community so it's self-sustaining. That doesn't mean that you become the equivalent of a sociopath and you don't interact with broader economy. You don't interact with the world economy. Of course you would. None of that, you know, that doesn't change. Uh, and it's, it's not, it wouldn't be practical anyway. But, but, but there is a way in which you create a much more holistic sense of an actual community as a whole on itself and, and you take responsibility for it. And frankly, I think it's the right kind of realm of operation, if you will. It's the right scope of operation because if I'm a mayor, I can kind of get my hands around the economics, the culture, the people, the money, the, the, the arts. Like I can get my hands around that within my region. As soon as you go to the next layer up in the, in the social stack, it gets harder especially in a state like California, you, then you have a lot of moving pieces. Then you get to DC and now you have, you know, the diversity is too high. So I think that the right uh, scope of operation is actually local. I've said for a long time now, if, if I can drive 20 minutes or anybody in the city can drive 20 minutes to get some of their needs met during this period, then that city has solved and, and been, been a forward thinker in solving what is clearly going to continue to be, um, these kinds of disruptive things. So thank you for the question. It's really, really important. It's probably not, I mean, it's, you know, there's obviously a lot that, that, that one could say about that, but uh, on the consciousness piece, let me just say, I think that as you do that, as you lead from that place, particularly in the heart of a crisis like this, it's not going to take a lot of convincing to help people see that, boy, uh, you know, the Las Vegas plan for 21st century resilience that would have a lot of political support right now from all across the aisle, from every domain in the city, that's going to have a lot of political support. Here's the plan. We're going to do this and this and this and this and this. And yeah, it might cost a little bit more to have that factory ready. It might cost a little bit more to have that warehouse. It may be good too. And we want, we want our own internal economy. We want, we want to make sure that we have food growers. 
locally. We want to make sure that we've got these set of things. All of that plan would probably get a lot of political support right now because people are coming. What's changed right now, let me just say one minute on this. I think it's important. One of the things that's really changed in this now versus the last 12 years or last 11 years is we've been in a cycle of decadence. We've been in a cycle of decadence the last 12 years and actually going back even further, a cycle of decadence for a long time, right? We won World War II. I say that it's not you know, totally true, but I mean, like everything about our spending and our habits and all this, at least in the US, has been this, this backdrop of decadence. Well, now we're going through a moment where that's shifted, that background context has shifted to discernment. It's shifted to discipline. And that polarity is a big shift. And, and what's going to come out of that as people move from like the greed of decadence, champagne flowing of the roaring 20s, to the discernment and discipline of the, the, the more hardship-oriented 30s, when you move from greed to fear, and now people are aware of the stakes, is your political possibilities open up. You have new political possibilities. You have new support for things that aren't quite as ideologically ideologically. Uh, uh, luxury goods, as I as I was saying earlier. Great, thank you so much. Thank you for Thanks the question, question, Stephen. All right, man. Well, we're two hours in. Um, this has been exquisite, Rob. But thank you. It was, it was, Just thank you. Um, yeah, this no, been, my, my my pleasure. Yeah. I know it's a big meal, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, we can continue to unpack it with folks either online or. Uh, Know, yeah. up on Twitter or whatever. Well, that was, you know, one, one thing I'm going to say is that, you know, right now, I think we're still in this period where we're, um, you know, mentally and physically really bracing for the impact that's about to come. We know that we're a couple weeks behind places like Italy. Um, we know that this is going to get much worse before it gets better. And I just want to remind people, we're going to be here every step of the way. We're going to be doing regular shows like this every single week. Um, if you need a place to go, if you need people to talk to if you need just like an outlet um, and, and, and just to feel like you are, you are connected with other people who care about the same things that you do. Um, we invite you to Integral Life. We invite you to these shows. Uh, yeah, come hang out with us. Come talk to us. Uh, this has been deeply nourishing for me and I, I, I hope for all of you guys as well. And um, just Rob, thank you so much, man. Well, thanks for everybody uh, coming on and, and, uh, and, and continue to support Integral Life with your, with your heart, with your time, with your, uh, with your hard-earned money. It, it means the world to us. Thank you for uh, participating. And I would close with this thought. The transformation age is aptly named. It's going to invite us to transform. It's going to invite us to transform a lot of different pieces. And it's a very bright future. Uh, transformation isn't always the, you know, it, it isn't always the f most fun, like minute by minute, but it's got just amazing things along the way. And, uh, but it's, but it's, but it's really going to be transformative and it's going to help us move to much brighter pastures in the future. So it's exciting. And I thank you all for being, uh, with us in helping to see it come into fruition. It's real. Amen. All right, guys, until next time, thank you so much. And, uh, okay. we'll be talking to you soon. All right. Bye, guys. See ya.